Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And today, we're going to be talking about someone very special, and that's filmmaker, artist, Matt Farley and Friends. Have you never heard of Matt Farley? Well, we brought a special guest just to help us out with that, and that's Mr. Peter Koplowski. Who are you, Peter? Why are you on this? Uh, I'm a Toronto film curator. I work for the Toronto International Film Festival. I also do short film programming at Fantastic Fest in Austin, Texas. And uh, I'm a, I, I'm one of the biggest Matt Farley fans that I know. <laughs> so you're the one that kind of introduced us to Matt Farley twice, I would say. Yeah, I discovered Matt Farley myself as a, as a film festival programmer because he submitted his film Freaky Farley to Toronto After Dark, I think, 10 years ago at this point. And to my great shame, though I liked the movie and wrote them a very complimentary letter, I didn't really follow up with Matt and, to see, and, and Charlie, the director, to see what his his deal was uh, until only about two years ago uh, in which I went down the rabbit hole and discovered not only is Matt Farley and his friend uh, Charlie Roxburgh and he's made multiple movies he's a prolific singer-songwriter having recorded 19,000 songs <laughs> that are available to listen on Spotify in which he earns a passive income from those songs of about 25 grand a year I think I think we should pause on this moment <laughs> yeah because how, do, how exactly how does his songwriting career work we should talk about right off the bat before we're very excited to talk about this filmmaker, yeah. which is what does he do and why does it interest us so specifically? Because Matt Farley is a filmmaker who makes films with his friends in his hometown. And on the surface, you could call them essentially kind of horror parodies to use a very broad term. Mm -hmm. But like, Will, what would you describe them as? I would say his sensibility is a bit of a mix of he's kind of like John Waters in that he often has his non-actor friends reciting this very arch overwritten dialogue in a monotone way, but he's sort of sweeter than John Waters. There's a bit of a Tim and Eric quality to mm. him. There's also a bit of a, like, Ray Dennis Steckler backyard filmmaker quality. And while you're watching it, there's always a certain part of you that's like, exactly how self-aware is this guy? Like, is this guy a genius? <laughs> yeah. I had to write, I had, that was exactly the email I wrote to him and Charlie when I first saw Freaky Farley. I really... I, and this I really, was 10 years this ago. This was 10 years ago. I really couldn't... I, I was like, do they know how funny this is? Mm -hmm. Because there's so many, so many sort of non-professional performances and odd line readings, and at the same time, there does seem to be an awareness of the of a con continuity of sort of mm -hmm. outsider art filmmaking genre, you know, is community and regional genre filmmaking from people like Don Doler and um, Dave the Rock Nelson. That seems mm -hmm. like like they're very much in touch with, with those kinds of movies but with like a tinge of irony that's not obnoxious or winky, but very sincere at the same time. Yeah, you sense that they get what's funny about the movies they're quote-unquote parodying, but they also want to make a version of those movies. There's a real let's put on a show, let's get dressed up and have fun with our friends quality to their films. And we should explain right off the bat that Matt Farley is also famous for writing those songs. Yeah. Like, if you search Matt Farley, movie stuff probably won't come until, like, a few pages into Google. And this, I think, is what adds to that question of how self-aware is he, because you find out that he's written 19,000 songs for Spotify, and he will, you know, just go through the dictionary and write a song about every word, or he'll go through a book of names and write a happy birthday song for every single name. He'll mm -hmm. write a song about every single celebrity, and and, you know, sometimes he'll write 100 songs a day and you think, is this a crazy man? <laughs> and and, and he, he also records hundreds of episodes of podcasts where he self-aggrandizes himself as one of the greatest singer-songwriters in the world and gets legitimately, like, defensive and upset when people criticize him 
but it's it's always with a a tremor of irony that you you are yeah. still not entirely sure where he's coming from, and it, it's it's the kind of there's the there's a kind of comedic stamina that honestly reminds me of of like an Andy Kaufman type, mm-hmm. someone who is who just thought eleven years ago, wouldn't it be funny if. 10 years later, I have written 19,000 songs. And his business model for these songs is that, you know, a really successful Matt Farley song might make $2 a year in clicks. But if you multiply $2 by... uh, yeah, I, I don't like, know, 10,000 or yeah. whatever. Like, eventually you get enough of a living. If we jump all the way back to the history of Matt Farley and Friends, when he was in college, he met two guys, Charles Roxburgh and Tom Scalzo. And this was his trio of friends, including there were some other friends around them that act in all his films. But this is like the core creative group. And what he found in these friends were people who loved VHS horror movies and was Tom Scalzo wanted to make music. Like, Charlie was the movie guy and Tom was the music guy. And I actually heard about Matt Farley even way before you guys, where I read a review in Shock Cinema Magazine of one of the books that he wrote with his friends. Yeah, because we mentioned he publishes books as well. Yeah, he did. Uh, And what he would do was, he and his friends would spend a weekend just watching movies, and they would write reviews that were like kind of back and forth conversations about the movies they watched. And there was something that I found so fascinating in this like idea of watching movies essentially for 48 hours straight (laughs) that actually directly led to me doing 20 24-hour movie marathons based on, like, hearing that they did it. And there's something, I think, very touching and inspiring about the fact that he's such a compulsive creator. Mm -hmm. I mean, he has a business model that he's able to make a living off of, and, you know, he works himself so hard because of the business model. But... You know, he doesn't make money off these movies. He loses money consistently on these movies, and they have a very small audience, except for, you know, 200 weirdos like us. Um, But uh, he just has to make them. (laughs) (laughs) I find that very inspiring as well. He's someone who, when he has an idea, he sees it through, no matter how ridiculous and no matter what the scope of his audience is. He's a compulsive walker, and he walks around his hometown and from city, sometimes city to city. He loves long walks, and he actually writes a zine for his walks that he actually month you know I believe monthly mails to a very small mailing list including <laughs> including Mark Marin not because Mark Marin is officially on his mailing list but because he wants Mark Marin to mention it on his show <laughs> yeah. he's been doing this for like 6 or 7 years again it's on the edge of is this person crazy and <laughs> this may sound it may sound like this man who's just operating with no recognition whatsoever but he did land an appearance on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon about a year ago. Which, Will, when I remember talking to you about this, if if this had been another decade, perhaps three decades earlier, this would have, like, really broken Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> J- uh, Matt Farley. He would Everyone would hear about Matt Farley. But yeah, because what ended up happening there was that Matt Farley just wrote a song about Pizza Hut and how buildings who used to be Pizza Hut still have that Pizza Hut shape. It's, like, a, good, it's a good song. And, you know, it's had, funny. And he also wrote it because there was, like, a... I think a Tumblr meme mm. about it. So he just thought, oh, someone might look up this Tumblr meme on Spotify <laughs> uh, for used to be a Pizza Hut. I might get $2 a year off this song. And the people at Jimmy Fallon just stumbled upon that song, not knowing who Matt Farley was. Yeah. <laughs> as being the prolific songwriter. Because this band, uh, the song uh, was, of course, under Matt Farley's, a- one of his many aliases, Paparazzi and the Photogs. <laughs> Where he writes songs about famous people like uh, Peter Bogdanovich or yeah. John Carpenter. He, he also... Uh, 
uh, has a, a persona, the Toilet Bowl Cleaner, which is his most popular band. Yeah, and that just boils down to people searching "poo" in Spotify and looking for songs about that. Because, because yeah. what he's found out is, after people are done looking up the songs they like, they they start looking up novelty words, mm-hmm. and so the novelty word they always type is "poop." Mm-hmm. Specifically, children. Children have really made him a lot of money, and with the uh, <laughs> sort of Alexa Google Play uh, revolution, the amount of times a kid will just say Alexa poo it means the Matt Farley songs about it <laughs> and he has yeah. seen his numbers like triple in the last few months that's it I think it's fair to say that he seems to enjoy the poo songs <laughs> it's, it's not merely a calculated business decision no no I think it's... and we should point out that these songs all the ones that he kind of churns out is just him just tinkling at a piano and essentially just making up lyrics as he goes along but they're I think pretty consistent they are <laughs> yeah so I mean we're a movie podcast we got this music Matt Farley stuff out of the way let's talk about his movies mm-hmm. where I mean, we all watched one of the earlier ones that is currently available online, which is Druid Gladiator Clone. Yeah, that's arguably his first feature, though he has two others, Adventures in Crubin County and Sammy, The Tale of the Terrible Teddy, both of which I think are worth your time. But I do feel like Druid Gladiator Clone is where he comes into his own as a filmmaker. Uh, and it, it is important to, to parse the fact that Matt Farley is not always the director of these films. Mm-hmm. Charlie Waksberg often serves as the director, but... He, but Matt will will often be the real sort of what uh, for like creative the, force, creative force behind mm-hmm. it as the 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 co-writer, the producer, the star, the impresario of the whole, and sometimes thing. the director. Yeah, yeah, because Drew Gladiator Clone is credited to Matt Farley, yeah. even though that uh, Charlie does show up in it. Mm-hmm. And so in this one, it's probably I was shocked at how kind of like constructed it was, and it moved pretty fast considering it's such an early picture. And right from the get go, you realize that. There are no production values at all. Like, this is not something that seems to interest anybody making the movie. Like, the biggest production value you get is people wearing cloaks, <laughs> and that's pretty much well, it. They have some monster masks towards the end that are actually pretty novel. Well, there's a visual effect where, you know, he runs around town with a with a cloak on. No and, shirt. And he, like, throws out his hands at people, and, like, uh, laser beams come out of his fingers. So that's the most complicated special effect. I think effect. it's literally the iMovie effect, mm-hmm. uh, electrical bolt iMovie effect that came with the first edition of iMovie. So he's, like, a, a druid, and he has a master. I mean... I, I think the mythology of, of Druidianism, as it's portrayed in this, is a little sketchy. He seems more like a vampire than anything. And incidentally, Druids feature throughout all his early yeah. films as this running joke. Definitely an obsession of the Moturn Media, which is the name of Matt Farley's kind of like production company. But the plot, such as it is, <laughs> is that he runs around town in a cave, you know, blasting people with these laser beams that are supposed to make them fe- feel better. F- yeah. That's what he's told by his That's He's told that it makes them feel better, but actually it makes them feel bad and what he realizes eventually is that if you think positive thoughts and then you you blast them then they'll feel good yeah so try to picture in your mind do you think it's funny that a guy with no shirt on running around shooting lightning from his fingertips in in, in modern day man vegas very very quintessential americana small town and then they're knocked out is funny to you if it is you'll probably enjoy this movie and if you're like oh i don't know 
then the film turns into like a romantic comedy (laughs) where he has to juggle two women when he finds out that if he thinks like you guys said good thoughts or if he thinks hungry or superpowers and he zaps people this will become true for a limited time well i was a little baffled by this movie for maybe the first half but then i started (laughs) to figure out about halfway through that it is basically an assemblage of cliches from big hollywood movies Mm -hmm. so you know the idea that this young guy who is has this domineering master and has been raised to with these powers that he doesn't fully understand suddenly realizes what the powers are and he he's given a shot at a different kind of life you yeah know, with this with this good woman but you know how does he reconcile that with his master like that's a kind of common blockbuster trope mm-hmm. or halfway through the movie he clones himself <laughs> yeah. which is you know just out of nowhere <laughs> yeah. I, I mean we've seen versions of that in in movies where a character gets cloned mm-hmm. um hey, this sounds so silly but we should clarify that the tone of these films is it's so earnest. Very deadpan. Yes. Yeah, very very sincere and, and serious. And this is where we get the first inklings as far as people kind of venturing into the waters of uh, their movies of like the kind of charm that they have, which is that none of these people are professional actors. No. And it's the way that they act, though, that makes it so fun to watch. Well, I think Matt Farley is a great leading man for his own movies because he, he, he's kind of conventional looking, uh, somewhat, somewhat blandly handsome, kind of a Brendan Fraser type. <laughs> You know. I think I think we'll we'll get to it eventually, but I think in don't don't let the Ruries get you. He looks so much like Mark Wahlberg in The Happening. <laughs> yeah, absurd. yeah, it, right down to what the clothes he wears. <laughs> yeah. And there's just something sort of like inherently kind of sweet and mm. harmless about him mm-hmm. um, that makes him just and very earnest mm-hmm. that makes him the right anchor for this world. So in his early films, he felt comfortable just working with the people around him, like. I would consider the superstar of the uh, Motown Media universe is Kevin McGee, which is a big, like, muscle guy with blonde hair who looks like someone that would be your boss at, like, a supermarket. He seems to be in his 60s. I I believe, and and, and Matt Farley will no doubt listen to this podcast, so he (laughs) might school me later, but I believe uh, Matt's relationship with Kevin. Kevin was, like, former guidance counselor or instructor at, and I think they worked together potentially at uh, a group home. At a group home that Matt worked for many years uh, working with teenagers. And he's the kind of guy who, like, Tim and Eric would put in a sketch playing somebody's grandpa because he, he doesn't quite look like somebody you'd see on TV, but he looks a lot like somebody you would just see in normal life. And he just plays every scene so straight, but his delivery is, like, just kind of off enough to be really funny. I feel of all these sort of uh, Moturn players, Kevin McGee gets it the most Mm. uh, beyond Matt Farley. He really understands how to perform the kind of dry comedy that Matt is pursuing. It's almost Bersonian, isn't it? I, you could almost say that was any of their performances. But him in particular. It's like the way Bruce saw his theory of using actors as models. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've read Matt say that he never wants anybody to give like an over-the-top performance. They're never going for the laughs. Mm. They're just trying to do this as best as they can. And as non-actors... And, and so much is, is, is I think, con- the performances are so much controlled by the script itself. Mm. They are intentionally written to be incredibly acerbic and incredibly verbose. You can sense that the actors are not even sure of half the words they're saying. Sometimes. Yeah, like they don't understand. They're like challenging line readings to begin with. And I think that goes a lot to the um, tribute to these sort of like regional community uh, genre movies from the 60s and 70s that often had like very ridiculous dialogue. Well, Peter, 
Peter, you remember when you and me saw that movie? I think it was called the the Kidnapper's Partner or something. The Kidnapper's Foil. The Kidnapper's Foil, which was uh, in the early 20th century. Um, you know, maybe just after the dawn of sound, certain traveling salesmen, filmmaker types, would go from town to town and they would make a movie starring the community, basically, mm-hmm. and then they would sell it back to the community so they can all be in a movie. And in that particular movie, it's like all these kids and just regular townspeople reading these lines as if they learned them phonetically. (laughs) Everybody making these movies talks about their influences, especially Tom Scalzo and Charles Roxburgh. They talk about movies like Memorial Valley Massacre, Shriek of the Mutilated, Creature of the Black Lake, The Pit, The Majorettes, The Worm Eaters. Movies that people wouldn't even consider so bad they're good. Just movies that have a distinct feel about them. Well, most of those movies you mentioned are very regional mm-hmm. specific movies, movies that aren't, you know, Hollywood or New York movies. And when Matt Farley talks about what he likes about those films, it's not like the gore, the fact that they're shoddily made. It's the moments in between all that stuff mm-hmm. where it's kind of like the hanging out and that's what kind of obsesses them and they want to recreate on screen. Yeah, and the fact that all the people are clearly, you know, just people who were who they had available to mm-hmm. them and weren't, you know, were doing it on a lark, maybe. I think the only actress that they've ever sort of gotten remotely professional means that they did like a Craigslist yeah. call uh, was um, Jenny from uh, Marriage Monsters in Las Vegas. Which was their, technically their second... I don't want to say professional film, but one that they made to actually be released because their first one was a picture called Freaky Farley, which Peter mentioned was the one that was submitted to film festivals. So uh, Matt said that this was the one like, all right, we've made all these features with our friends. Like, let's make one that we're going to put out there. It impressively is shot on film. And it's a movie that they shot on a a 16 millimeter Super 16 on an old Russian camera they picked up at a um, just a used junk store. And, you know, people listening, if you don't understand the way that, like, film works, it's friggin' expensive. Like, Yeah, I mean, Matt's often said he could have bought a car, but he decided to make a movie instead, <laughs> spend it on the 16 millimeter film. And Freaky Farley is probably the first of their films that is like a very distinct genre pastiche, specifically stuff like The Pit, which if you don't know what that is, it's a Canadian film about a small boy whose teddy bear tells him to throw people into a pit where monsters live and then they get eaten. I think there's a bit of a like Last House on the Left quality to it, that, mm-hmm. that kind of out-in-the-woods slasher movie, um, kind of an Ed Gein yeah. thing. Yeah, Freaky Farley is probably the only one of their films that I've seen that feels like a little bit unpleasant. Like, yeah. the mood of it is almost kind of like, I don't know, suffocating? Well, I mean, it's a movie that begins as this the story of a peeping Tom mm-hmm. uh, who has a traumatic past where his mother was murdered and is now his father his overbearing father played by the wonderful Kevin McGee forces him to just dig holes in his backyard all day but then as the <laughs> film goes along it begins to introduce this plot that there are literal monsters in the woods that are killing people and with the help of both a ninja and a witch literally a ninja and a witch that live in the town and are accepted as members of the community Farley is uh, being permitted to go into the woods to kill these monsters, and, and if he does, he will receive a full pardon. For you have just described only the last, like, 20 minutes of the movie. I mean, we missed um, his his romance of sorts, mm. uh, and we missed the scene where he murders his father. <laughs> yes, because after hanging Spoiler out with alert. this, like, yeah, disturbed <laughs> character for, like, 
50 minutes, he suddenly goes crazy and just starts murdering people. But it's very uh, goofy. Yes, it is. Definitely owes a lot to uh, the sequel to Silent Night, Deadly Night. Mm. Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2. In fact, there is a scene where he says, Garbage Day! Yeah, or something to that effect. I think it's Recruitment Day. (laughs) Yeah, happens to kill a a veteran. Which is a good example that, like, Matt Farley was, like, seven years too early, it feels like. Like, Garbage Day was a meme after this. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, like, he was already making jokes about it, but no one was able to see it. And, like, that joke going, like, Recruitment Day is a playoff of Garbage Day. Yeah. As if you know it, and then so you can laugh at this joke. They're movies that are specifically made for people that are in the know, in a way. Like, oh, we like this. We expect you to like this as well. I think with a movie like Freaky Farley, uh, if you find it funny, it's got to be kind of the disparity between what's being depicted and the way it's being depicted. Mm -hmm. Like, everyone, everyone plays it very deadpan and very serious, but also they're impossible to take seriously. So, <laughs> yeah. so the joke comes, I guess, in that disparity. Mm-hmm. And I think that Freaky Farley is a little bit of like a work that's trying to find exactly what its place is supposed to be. And you can see as they continue to make movies like Monsters. Marriage Monsters and yeah. Murder in Manch Vegas. Marriage Monsters and Murder in Manch Vegas that they're kind of figuring out what their formula is. Like Freaky Farley's almost like a little bit too serious in a way while Monsters and uh, while Marriage is just call very it Manch silly. Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna call it Manch Vegas. Is like very goofy and short. Where then you have Don't Let the River Beast Get You, which is almost like the ultimate example of what their filmmaking can be. It's definitely Matt's masterpiece, I think. Yeah, I, I think it's an, a really incredible film. You guys showed it uh, two or three years ago at your film festival, What the Film Festival. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it wasn't a huge audience, but like the Velvet Underground, you know, <laughs> everyone who saw it went out and made their own film. We um, were actually showing it like the film was already on DVD. DVD, yeah. but uh, we liked it so much that we just wanted to give it to an audience. And so, like, Don't Let the River Beast Get You is probably the easiest one to sell as well, because it is just like a straight-up monster movie pastiche. And it also is the one that I think works the best as a three-act story, <laughs> yes. in a way. Even though it probably is a ten-act story, the amount of <laughs> it, subplots it, that it's, it It's very baggy, I think it's fair to say. So, the movie is about Matt Farley plays a tutor in a small town that... I guess he comes back to that town because after being away for a long time. He's been disgraced for many years because uh, year, years ago he had got the town into a panic over the mythical river beast that haunts the, the mm. local river, which he still believes to be true. Uh, meanwhile, his uh, former fiance has gone... <laughs> he left him at the altar because he was busy looking for the river beast, apparently. <laughs> right, right. And let's not forget, he also has a band that he abandoned. The River Mud Warriors. The River Mud right. Warriors. Um, but his ex-fiance has gone on to become the fiance of someone else and now he's come back to town and he wants to win her back by proving once and for all that the the river beast is real but his his journey will be complicated in many ways not least by the local muckraking journalist sparky watts um he also has a complicated alliance with ito hootkins the big game hunter played by matt farley's uh, father yeah uh who, uh, who he hires to look for the river base, but unfortunately, it, Udo Hookins is a real romance, <laughs> romance uh, uh, 
That's, that's Don Juan. Like, that, wait, don't no. forget his best friend who starts a relationship with a popping and locking um, homo, homeless, homeless woman. Right. <laughs> his best friend is a street performer who who just plays the guitar, but she does popping, and she explains what popping is as a dance. But but she is a a homeless person who truly embraces the hobo lifestyle. And there's a great shot where I mean, describing it won't do it justice. But there's you've got to trust me. There's a really funny shot where she sees another homeless person just skipping along with. With, with like what do you, what do you call the thing a bindle yeah a bindle over her shoulder and she's like oh my feet are getting sweaty <laughs> she, or something like that look at that person embracing the hobo lifestyle and if you, if you listen to any of Matt's songs he embraces the hobo lifestyle it's like a common theme in Matt's mm. music as well and I mean like I I guess the way to think if you would find this movie funny is do you find it funny if Matt Farley walks into a phone booth and he picks up the phone and he goes operator can you please connect me with Ido Hootkins. That's right, Ito Hootkins, the big game hunter. <laughs> just delivered totally deadpan. Or there's a later part in the movie, this may be a mild spoiler, but he goes to but he says, And we're going to raise Bradley, her deceased ex fiance's son from another marriage, as if he were our own. I mean, every time Bradley has mentioned this movie, he's always referred to the context as its son from another marriage. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if you find that funny, like this kind of on the nose describing, then like this is the movie for you. Or, you know, like Sparky Watts, the journalist, you know. His whole thing is now that Matt Farley's back in town, he has to, you know, nail him and get him trying to catch the river bee so we can put it on the front page of the newspaper. I really do like that the film uh, exists as if an entire movie we uh, has been made already that we've missed. That had, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so many of the of the so much of the dialogue is characters expositing something that happened years earlier mm-hmm. uh, for the benefit of the audience to catch up, which uh, is very very amusing. And there are just so many funny things that are you know, part of the mise-en-scene that are sort of unspoken. Like, the movie is shot in this extremely functional way. It's very it's very static. Mm-hmm. Everything looks extremely ordinary. The Especially pe- the- it, this one is shot on digital video. This is the first mm-hmm. digital uh, production. And it, and it looks very digital. Mm-hmm. Like, all... It looks like a small town, but not a particularly idealized small town. It's just like, you know, just an average town. Mm-hmm. The, a diner looks like any old diner. The people there just look like ordinary people. And, you know, there's a scene late in the movie when there's this televised broadcast from this big awards presentation (laughs) where the audience is like maybe a third full and there are just a bunch of balloons on the floor and then we see it's being televised to the whole community and it's it's unspoken how funny it is that there are only a third full. Well, we don't want to have any spoilers, but that scene also includes one of the funniest jokes Yeah, I think we all ever yeah. agreement that there's a punchline to that sequence that is just incredibly <laughs> set up. Oh, man. Kevin McGee's also got a really great part in this movie where he plays a former athlete and what's amazing is they never specify his athleticism and one of the running gags is every time you see Kevin McGee he's just doing a different sport so, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. he's playing hockey in one scene basketball in another scene but then towards the end he's more he's when he fights the river beast because yes there is a river beast he uh, played by Matt Farley in a monster suit that's that is this is where I think the Dave the Rock Nelson comparisons yeah uh, or or like it's like a Dom Dollar kind of costume from Galaxy Invader I, I like how you probably said a bunch of names and people are like wait who are you talking about Dave Listen, the Rock if you've Nelson? heard David the Rock Nelson. I mean, 
uh, look up David the Rock Nelson because he definitely has that like monster kid enthusiasm. Mm. Where and he got on a bunch of talk shows too. Yeah, yeah. That, that's true. Uh, but it's like he's more self-aware than David the Rock Nelson. But they're both guys who, instead of making a parody of a monster movie, actually kind of want to create a monster mm. movie. And I think that the most frustrating thing about talking about Matt Farley is that he doesn't have that audience that he deserves. Like these films seem to be tailor-made for the universe of so bad it's good but at the same time they're not for that group and he's like in the middle of that line well you know sometimes if you look up internet reviews of his movies like a lot most of his movies are available on youtube through mm. some sort of strange distribution deal but with- oh he put them up there himself okay no no, no he actually uh river beast is represented by an actual distribution company okay but it, they just dumped it to youtube but it, but it specializes in horror movies and yeah. so sometimes you'll see comments they're like what the fuck is this this isn't scary yeah you know it's like why like this isn't funny either like it's it's just like they don't know what kind of movie they're making when the reality is that they do know yeah you just don't know what kind of yeah. movie they're making. <laughs> and matt farley even though they don't get the audience that I believe they should have, they still continue to make movies. Like It just definitely does not deter them. No, even though that it's getting harder and harder because they are growing older and they're getting more responsibilities. And they're also getting more ambitious, I think. I mm-hmm. mean, each movie seems to get a little broader in scope. Me and Peter were able to see Slingshot Cops, their newest film, yeah. which is also one of their weirder ones because it doesn't have that kind of monster kid feel to it. I also feel like it's a film where they're their target of satire, sort of like the 80s cop movie, feels a little less original. Mm -hmm. It just sort of feels like something that I've already seen a lot of kind of, you know, cop parodies Mm -hmm. out there. But it still has a monster, and it still has a supernatural. Uh, It has the greatest monster in cinema history. I think it's the best monster that he's ever conceived of in in the entire Motown universe, and that's Sensefoot, which is played by Kevin McGee. Spoiler! uh, Spoiler. Uh, is it really so like not really but I mean but Kevin McGee plays the character that's kind of almost like a Cronenberg villain like he's like, yeah. he plays the roles with this kind of like really cr- this creepy dread it's the creepiest role McGee's ever played I mean to- McGee always plays himself but well I, I do think there's he shows some range in this one but but the concept is that if if uh, Kevin McGee's character Sensefoot if he touches you with his bare foot he gains whatever part of your body like the senses of every part of your yeah, body so-, so if you're really good like if you're a chef and he touches your nose, like you might, he might get your sense of smell and you can like <laughs> use that to cook food or something. Or, like uh, but don't let him touch his foot to your foot because that it, will kill you. That will suck all your life energy. <laughs> yeah. It's this amazingly obtuse mythology that they've created for this character that just sort of shows up in the middle of a cop narrative, mm-hmm. uh, a buddy cop story. Which uh, Matt Farley has said that he wishes he could contextualize all the movies before he showed them mm. because when he would show something like Slingshot Cops, you get in front of the audience and go, can you imagine making a movie that you star in and that your uncle, who's not an actor, also stars in yes. as a cop that's on the lamb that also uses a slingshot? Enjoy! I, I mean, that's what's one of the things that's so endearing about his movies is they really do feel like grown-up versions of the sort of movies that I would have made with my parents' mm-hmm. video camera when I was a kid. Uh, you know, just cat... And, you know, the only actor I had at my disposal <laughs> was my dad, so he would be in it. And that's not a knock toward the films, either. Yeah. No, and I think, I think there's, an, there's a sort of... There's a gr- wonderful comedy to how he'll have his family members in this movie, and they're often treated with such like reverence, <laughs> and that they're and that they're they're always in roles that in a conventional movie would be portrayed by like 
the you know a leading man Hollywood actor. Or something <laughs> yeah, like that. exactly. Yeah. But they're just it's just his dad. Or yeah, his uncle. yeah. It's very very charming, very endearing. Now you may be wondering, does this guy only make uh, you know sort of childish monster parodies? But what if I told you that he also made a film that is his own personal Stardust Memories? <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot of people have always asked Matt like, when's someone gonna make a documentary about you mm-hmm. or tell your story? And fittingly enough, Matt decided to tell his own story. He, Local Legends is ostensibly an autobiography of his entire career and his sort of uh, mandate and um, sort of mode of art. And when you say that to someone who doesn't know who he is, you're like, what? Like someone made their own autobiography? But this film is so funny and also so painful. Like yeah. it is not like... Uh, lifting Matt Farley up to show how awesome he is. It's mostly how sad he is. It's definitely a film that answered all the questions I had about Matt Farley. Uh, he plays himself mm-hmm. in it's a lightly fictionalized story about Matt Farley, a man who makes his living off writing songs for Spotify and who occasionally works at an old folks home wiping elderly patients' asses, as <laughs> yep. he says. Uh, and who, you know, every couple of years he saves up enough money to make a feature. And his features are not understood by anyone around him. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great scene where his uncle pulls him aside and said, you know, I have some friends in the film business. They were telling me about film festivals. Have you ever heard about <laughs> film festivals? Or there's another scene, which which I know you love, where he's showing one of it. He's showing Freaky Farley to a girl um, and and she goes to the bathroom and says, uh, should I pause it? And she goes, no, that's OK. And she stays in the bathroom for the rest of the movie. <laughs> I feel like anyone who's ever struggled to make movies and get their family members to watch them knows that anecdote very, very well. And it's also a movie that's working on a kind of different level than his other films, which are more kind of satirical. And it's funny how they're constructed. This one is more frustrated. Well, it's shot in black and white. And I think that was intended as an homage to Woody Allen, who's mm-hmm. name checked a number of times. But it feels the tone feels to me a little more like the color wheel. Mm-hmm. And it's the kind of film like the color wheel that you feel could have gotten play in these so-called film festivals. But the fact that he essentially shot it himself. Well, I wonder how legible is this movie to people who don't know Matt Farley already? Like, I, I feel like it was rewarding to me mostly because I had all these questions about this guy and here they are answered. I, I think I think the film would actually work to uh, an audience as a means of introducing Matt Farley mm-hmm. to his worldview. Um, I, I actually think if this movie was shot in 16mm and came out in 1994, it would have been at Sundance. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, something like Local Legends is such a personal vision because these are all anecdotes from his own life. And at the same time, they echo to anyone that's ever been creative or tried to do these things because this is not the story of someone trying to like make a movie and for it to get attention or write a book or write a song. This is the story of someone who's been doing this for a long time and it just hasn't happened for him, but he feels the need to continue doing this. And like, is creativity itself enough? Mm-hmm. Like when, when the world is indifferent. Yeah, no, uh, I, I... And the answer's no, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, for Matt Farley, it's good enough because he continues to make these movies. But I, when I talk of Matt Farley, I often say this is a guy who I feel has one life. Like, he figured it out. I mean, regardless, yes, he doesn't mm-hmm. have, you know, fame. He's not a millionaire. He uh, His audience is narrow. But he's someone who set certain goals for himself and I feel, I think is an incredibly creatively satisfied individual, despite the fact, I mean... Matt Farley's listening to this and he like throws it across the room. I'm not satisfied. <laughs> yeah. I want to be on The Tonight Show every day of the week. <laughs> why, they don't, why don't they call me back? 
Is this why Peter been telling people that I'm satisfied? <laughs> no, I mean, I think, and I think he's slowly. I think it's taken a long time, but I think we will see more rec- people recognizing his works in the next few years. Uh, he started this thing called the World Motorn Day, where it's a whole extravaganza where he performs for five and a half hours, uh, performing both his songs, but also scenes from his movies. <laughs> he has actors from his movies show up. They, he, he auctions off props from his films. Um, and when I went there, there were 19 other people who bought tickets. I went there last year. There's going to be another one this year. There's going to be one. There's 10 planned for the next ten decade. There's going to be 10 <laughs> of these, these conventions almost for him himself and his films and his music. And 19 other people went there. No one, almost no one who bought a ticket was from the same state. Wow. Which nice. I thought was really impressive and really fascinating. The uh, acclaimed electronic artist uh, Dan Deacon was in attendance. Uh, he's he's famous. <laughs> Peter's responding to me, shaking my head and shrugging my shoulders. I, I mean, he's he's a he's a f- soundtrack composer. Mm-hmm. He's a you know well-regarded electronic music artist. Uh, if only there was some famous programmer, for example, Midnight Madness, <laughs> that could recommend Matt Farley's films. Well, to Matt's me. working on something new now, that, and so I'm totally open to looking at it. I mean, honestly, I do. Be- I'd l- just I- play River Beast. Come I mean, on, yeah, no, a retro it, it might as well not have been released. <laughs> yeah. Pretend that like you're like Matt. Listen, we're gonna remove any like scrub Google. I'd like to believe that if I saw River Beast as a fresh movie, I would fight tooth and nail to play that. Really? Madness. I just think that movie. I think even if you have any like wariness going in. Even this, the very first scene, which sets up this wonderful uh, William Castle gimmick that every time a river beast shows up in the movie, the screen is going to flash red. <laughs> yeah. And the warning is is delivered by, like, a sort of disheveled man in an armchair re- <laughs> reading, reading a book. Yeah. <laughs> like... I think that joke alone is so dryly delivered and uh, and then is paid off subsequently so well throughout the movie. I think it's an inf- it, 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 an infectious reaction mm. will occur with the audience. I think people will jump onto it. And when we showed it at, at, at What the Film Fest, sure, there wasn't a lot of people there, but most of the people there were not at all familiar with Matt until that screen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, a lot of people that I've spoken to since then have mentioned that screening in like reverential tones of how funny it was. Well, one of those is me. <laughs> and I, that was such an eye-opening screening to me, in particular that famous gag at the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. It, it felt life-changing There's, in a weird way. <laughs> they are movies that you need to be trapped with in a theater with a bunch of people, or you're watching with a group of friends. Well, I don't know. Not necessarily. I think if you if you keep yourself like alone in your in your home and you don't look at your phone... I know, but people River don't Beast, do that, though. That's what I mean. Is I'm, that t- I'm telling our listeners to do that with yeah. movies. Yeah. Tie your, tie, your, tie your arms to the chair. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and immerse yourself in this world. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, what I, I, I think there are, the thing that I think is also great about Matt Farley and why I'm really glad that you guys are doing an episode on him and that more people can start seeing him is, is that Matt, I don't think, is the only one like him. There are so many folk filmmakers out there that are making content. And Matt's like, what? No, don't talk about them. <laughs> this is my episode. Yeah, you're right. Don't talk about the others. We can save them for another episode. But I just do think this is, the, you know, when people talk about filmmaking as becoming... Uh, I think it was democratized, democratized yeah. or something like mm. that. I, I, I do think it is fantastic that we're getting that there, there are filmmakers that are creating their own communities. Matt on his podcast repeatedly says uh, when he gets on his high horse that like you know forget Hollywood. Let's make let's bring make your own Hollywood in your backyard and mm-hmm. just make your own movies for your friends and your families. And that's the community that's most important. Why do you have to go to L.A. or and, New York to make it? And like Matt has been able to do that. Like. He, 
everybody around him isn't like, oh, why do you keep doing this? Like they participate, and even oh. his wife is forced into lead roles in those films. <laughs> I mean, I do, I do, I do know that Matt has friends who are definitely asking him, <laughs> why are you still doing that? But I, I do think he I, should send them this podcast and be like, listen, this is why I do oh, it. Oh, Matt sends sends anytime someone talks positively about Matt, he definitely sends it to his friend Sleason, who is constantly dismissive of his work. <laughs> Uh, I'm glad we can do a podcast that sounds like it's one of our friends that we're talking about. But it's not. But yeah, just it, to listen, we're not. I mean, the other thing we, I can't believe we haven't mentioned yet, Matt is probably the only filmmaker I know that actually includes his, his phone number in his movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's right. You can call him at any time. That's actually a huge plot point in Local Legends. Like, in the midpoint of the movie, he just flashes it on screen <laughs> and says, listen, if you call me, I'll send you a free DVD. <laughs> and the movie actually features actual phone calls from strangers who just call him. And apparently his phone rings, like, all the time. Time, uh, from people who have just listened to one of his poop songs that happened to mention his <laughs> phone number because he'll sometimes yeah. sing it in the lyrics of his song. Also, you can buy a song from him. Yes. Um, which maybe we should do sometime. <laughs> the Important Cinema Club. And I yeah. gotta say, uh, the, the, uh, there's been like a, a Reply All uh, episode yeah. about his, yeah. his singing and his custom songs, but they're actually very moving to listen to. If someone has ever bought you, if you bought anyone a, a custom song from Matt, they're meticulously researched in the sense like he asks a lot of questions of the person mm-hmm. uh, 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 and then he sings it back to you and when my brothers got me one I was honestly like moved to tears <laughs> I'm glad we could do this uh, Matt Farley infomercial podcast episode yeah it's an unofficial Matt <laughs> yeah. episode yeah anyway Matt Farley please keep making movies yes because we're going to keep watching them and dear listener you should watch these movies as well yeah. start with Don't Let the River Beast Get You mm-hmm. maybe watch Local Legends after that mm-hmm. because that gives you a taste of the more serious Matt Farley quality then maybe um, Freaky Farley Freaky Farley maybe because it's free and it, and then at that point you should be a super Motorn fan so you'll pay the money mm, to that's get right. Ranch Vegas for three ninety nine on YouTube yes because that's the only one I think you can, that and Slingshot Cops are the only ones that aren't available that aren't available for free you don't even get it on YouTube you just email Matt and you say how much will it cost to get these DVDs because he has them there's commentaries and special features on them he'll probably throw in a CD as well of his music and boom there you go you're a Motorn media fan for life so, Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do. This letter is from Tom Sikorsky. That's a long letter. And, <laughs> and as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And it goes, Dear Justin and Will, I've been listening to your show for a while now and have, like everyone else who writes in, discovered a lot of filmmakers I previously wasn't familiar with. Perhaps my favorite discovery from your show has been Choi Hark. Picking Opera Blues and Once Upon a Time in China in particular were both very entertaining and mixed comedy action and emotion in an effective and energetic way that I rarely see ever in a Western film. One thing that struck me about them was the politics of the films. Both while primarily meant to entertain, dealt with very relevant issues for Hong Kong, corrupt despots, and foreign imperialists. It reminded me of the golden age of Hong Kong filmmaking might be the only example of a great cinematic movement to ever exist under a colonial regime, as most colonies got their independence decades before Hong Kong. Were there any other filmmakers in Hong Kong who dealt with this issue? I'm unfamiliar with how much censorship existed under British rule and if that at all shaped the subject matter of films, but it would be interesting to see more films that dealt with colonialism as most films that I've seen dealt with the subject, such as Ken Loach, The Wind That Shakes the Barley, were made long after the rule ended. On the episode of Troy Hark, we talked about the fact that his films in the 80s, 70s, 90s are very political. Like, even the most 
entertainment-based ones are going to have messages that, like, critique China. And as far as, like, entertainment directors go, I think Sure Hark is definitely the leader in that regard. Also, I think there is an evolution in his films, though, because, you know, Once Upon a Time in China was made at this time when all these Hong Kongers were trying to get passports for overseas and trying to move to America or Canada or wherever else. And he was sort of implying in the movie that, you know, we're Chinese and the grass isn't always greener on the other side, you know? But at the same time, his films feel like a direct critique against mainland China. Mm-hmm. Like something like Green Snake, uh, the main villain slash hero in the film, always has a large uh, red flag behind him when mm-hmm. he fights. Like that is a very unsubtle kind of like dig at China without making them literal ones. Anyway, now he's just a foot soldier for the <laughs> regime. As so many of those politically charged filmmakers were. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you'd have to move more to the, like the art house if you want kind of critiques of British colonial rule in Hong Kong before mainland China took over. I think there was a a certain amount of censorship, though, in Mm -hmm. Hong Kong. I think they had to be like one of the reasons why they all had to have subtitles burned onto the prints in both Chinese and English was so that the British could keep track of what people were saying in the Mm -hmm. movies in case there was anti-colonial propaganda. But at the same time, like these entertaining films like True Hark made were often dismissed as like, eh, we don't need to worry about those. Right. Like, just subtitle them, put them out, and we're not going to dive too deep into them because they're not direct critiques in the way that... I mean, the colonialists were always incredibly, you know, portrayed as buffoons in Jackie Chan movies. Like, <laughs> or any <laughs> Hong Kong film. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing better than the dumb British villain in the yeah. movie. Usually played by some guy they found at the... At <laughs> the, the local like, international school or yeah. something. Yeah. Or Chunking Mansion. Or maybe he's even a film critic that they get to appear in the uh, film. Mr. Uh, Paul Fonneroff. <laughs> yeah. Um, as far as other like political filmmakers and entertainment goes in Hong Kong, I, I, nothing comes to mind off the top of my head. I, I mean, it's it was known as uh, a not explicitly political cinema, <laughs> you know. I mean, uh, somebody like Wong Kar Wai, um, who's by no means a typical Hong Kong filmmaker, but his movies uh, tackled politics uh, deliberately, but very obliquely. Mm-hmm. Like the idea that Happy Together was his response to the handover by making a movie that was set um, as far away as you could get from Hong Kong, starring um, a gay couple who, you know, would have been persecuted in mainland China. Um, and then it ends with this montage of the streets of Hong Kong, mm-hmm. you know, in the months before the handover. None of this stuff comments directly on it, but it's supposed to just evoke certain thoughts in your mind. And a lot of the popular filmmakers that North American audiences know, like Wang Jing or John Woo, weren't tackling those subjects at all. Like, they didn't want to step on any toes. I mean, if, if you're looking towards more modern uh, filmmakers that were, are making films that I think fully with the audience in mind, but also a significant and substantial political agenda, Johnny Toe would be yeah. a major mm-hmm. filmmaker that is still whose films under the mainland system, like Drug War, I think are very, very critical Mm -hmm. of uh, mainland China and very politically engaged while also being a very functional and thrilling police procedural. I mean, the election films especially Mm -hmm. are incredibly politically charged. Um, Johnny Cho, the only guy making entertainment films under the mainland Chinese regime. Mm -hmm. Because uh, as me and Will have talked over the years, as more mainland Chinese films are coming out, it's not... uh... Uh, Well, you know, as a a fan of the uh, one belt, one road policy, (laughs) you can imagine that I loved Kung Fu yoga. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, Bleeding steel was kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's and not it's, it's in any way defensible on any rational grounds, but <laughs> it speaks to it speaks truth to the power of uh, 
you know, cybernetic uh, mutants that fly across, <laughs> across the world and fight Jackie Chan. And yeah. people should remember as well is that the Hong Kong films coming around in the 80s and 90s didn't really uh, have much play in mainland China. That's not where they made their money. I, so, th- I don't think most of them were even allowed to be yeah. distributed in the no. mainland. Yeah. If you did, most of the time you'd have to like change your endings or it's like, oh, the villain gets captured. But I, I just don't think the market was even open. No, it wasn't. I, I actually heard one of the reasons why there was such a surge of sort of older Hong Kong stars showing up in movies, uh, in Hong Kong movies these days is actually because since they've been received, since the mainland market has kind of opened, a lot of their older films have played in mainland China mm. finally, and they've become super popular there. And that's why you see mm. a lot of Shaw Brothers stars suddenly popping up in movies. Huh. All right. So again, if you want to send us any letters, you can do it at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon episode, me and Will uh, got a little bit nostalgic. We discovered that we both were obsessed with the same two movie trailers when we were kids. Uh, we've talked about it before on the podcast, I But believe. I think you would have to be a pretty super fan to remember. And we're not going to tell you what the movies are uh, right now. You have to listen to the Patreon episode. Is it Surf Ninjas? Uh, no, it's not. Uh, you, I, If you haven't heard it, I don't think there's any way anybody could guess, could they? Because <laughs> they are obscure films that I had not even had an interest in watching since I got obsessed with those is it <laughs> I'm gonna have to cut it. <laughs> All right, I have to put a beep there because Peter guessed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought he was joking. I okay, because I think I've talked about it before yeah, with you. Yes, you have. Can you guess the other one? Oh, and um, uh, okay, not face off. Um, Pluto Nash? No. Oh. Well, that's way too that's long. Too late, that's too yeah. late. That's too late. Well, uh, listen, you'll have to subscribe to <laughs> the podcast if you want to listen US to Marshalls. it. It's $5 a month. So you get a new uh, Patreon episode every week. And me and Will are actually starting to do something new this week, which is that we're going to be having five to ten minute conversations after we each see a movie in cinema. It's uh, going to be little kind of like mini episodes. We just did one on Operation Red Sea, oh the uh, new Chinese blockbuster. We recorded at 1 a.m. or almost 1.30 a.m. Yeah. after seeing it in the theater. And you can, if you're a Patreon subscriber, it costs no extra money. You can just go and listen to it right now. But the thing is that there'll only ever be four episodes up at one time. So once we get four, when we post the fifth one, the first one is going to be deleted. And then when we post the sixth one, the second one's going to be deleted. So if you want to listen to us talk about like more modern fare that we see in cinemas, be, become a Patreon subscriber because that's the only way you'll be able to hear it. And before we go, we should mention uh, something that's coming up that me and Peter are doing, and that's the What the Film Festival. The fourth annual What the Film Festival 2018 <laughs> at the Royal Cinema. I should have really like pushed it that hard. <laughs> listen, to our thousands of Toronto listeners, I expect to see you all there because uh, we're doing two full days of I- movies. And by full days I mean in the evenings well but we're all it's it's, it's a whole day long event yeah. though because it's March 24th to 25th it starts at noon at the Monarch Tavern which is just steps away from the Royal Cinema on Clinton and College and uh, at, at the, the Monarch you'll be able to buy Arrow Video Blu-rays at wholesale prices DVDs we're gonna have um, uh, the Beguiling Comics is gonna be uh, have a bunch of artists showing up to sign uh, their work and also sell really cool indie comics we've got Hand Eye Society that are gonna be showing some game demos uh, and then once it gets to the evening we'll be watching really bizarre strange movies at uh, the Royal including two films that took their filmmakers seven years to make which is always the sign that you're <laughs> in for something amazing uh, one of them is an Italian uh, sort of Twilight Zone style thriller that was shot entirely with rear projection 
The other one is a stop animated uh, epic that was made by a person who had no idea to do stop motion until he started making the film, and he <laughs> learned as he went along. And we've got two world premieres, one from Canada, a film called Mango Shake that I've described as if Roy Anderson decided to remake uh, Slacker with the cast of The Kids in the Hall, <laughs> and uh, another film from... New- That's going to get the audiences in, yeah, all those yeah, Roy yeah, yeah. Anderson fans. I'm just throwing out I'm fans just of names. Roy Anderson. It's yeah. like a Venn diagram. Hey, if you like Wes Anderson, yeah, come to see this movie. you got to hit all those well, if you like Wes Anderson, you might enjoy uh, the this film uh, uh, called Greenhouse, which has kind of a style that reminds me of both Bottle Rocket or early Hal Hartley films. It's uh, super weird. Uh, the filmmakers are going to be there as well. And Justin, what, we're also showing a retrospective. Yeah, film. we're showing a film from 1994 called Anchor Zone. It's a post-apocalyptic kind of dystopian quest film that uh, was made in Newfoundland uh, because they wanted to kickstart the film industry. It cost almost $2 million. And uh, uh, did not kickstart the industry. It did not, and it has been forgotten since then, being released on VHS in Italy, and that's pretty much it, and, and not playing since and then. And who stars in it? Uh, the This Hour 22 Minutes superstar Mark Critch and, as and, a skateboarder named Rad. And don't forget Andrew Young, husband of Canada's worst driver. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. This is a film that has to be seen to be believed because it's like the folksiest post-apocalyptic film ever. It's basically St. John's if you put some smoke, like tagged a bunch of cars and like put purple lights over everything and you're like it's the future and it's on 35 millimeter which is insane <laughs> like uh we couldn't believe when we reached out to the distributor and we finally tracked down who owned the film and went can we play it they responded with oh yeah we have a print of it you can show that if you want to so which we we have no idea what it looks like but it was 94 so i'm sure it looks absurdly good and it well, probably I mean, hasn't played since yeah. <laughs> Okay, so next week, uh, we're going to be talking about Paul Verhoeven, the filmmaker behind such classics as Hollow Man. A long-promised episode. Yes, uh, we've gotten a lot of emails about it. I think the two films that we've earmarked were Turkish Delight and Starship Troopers. Sure. Which I think capture the like main kind of waves he went through his life. One of them working in the Hollywood system, making big budget, in-your-face, people-don't-get-it movies. You know, did you know that Starship Troopers is actually a bit of a sad Satire. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Save it for the podcast, Will. Save it for the Atlantic article. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, my name was Justin the Clue. I'm, I'm here today with Will Sloan. I was Peter Kaplowski. <laughs> you yeah. were Peter Kaplowski. <laughs> What's your name now? Matt Farley fan number one. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you're looking at the running time of this episode and wondering, why the heck is it so long? Well, it's because we're doing something a little bit different this week. Peter wanted to talk about other outsider filmmakers, so we recorded a whole other Patreon episode that you can go and listen to if you're a Patreon subscriber right now. He talks about some filmmakers that I can guarantee you have never heard of, but you will want to put on your radar. And as a super special treat, I reached out to Matt Farley, and he was gracious enough to answer a few of my questions. Enjoy. So when did you, like, decide that you wanted to make movies? Yeah, I don't know. When I was a, a young child, I was obsessed with movies as long as I can remember. I, I used to cut out um, ads for movies <laughs> out of the newspaper every week and keep them in a binder. I don't even know why, but, I mean, for years, just every time there was a new movie poster in the newspaper, I'd cut it out and put it in this little binder. I was so proud of it. I would just look at it. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, so then uh, I don't know. I was like 13. My family got a, a a VHS camcorder. And did you know that you wanted to be a director or an actor, or did that like evolve as you got into like the art of making movies? Uh, I definitely wanted to be a director. A writer just was an obvious thing to go with that too. An actor, sure, you know. Especially as time went on and, and it became clear that um. If, for the movies I was making, nobody was showing up to act, so better to <laughs> better to put me in it. And how did you get involved with Tom and Charlie? Because when I think of Motor Media movies, that's like the trio of people that work on every one of them. Um, we all went to Providence College together. Charlie's a year ahead of us. He was class of 99, and Tom and I were class of 2000. Like, it was always, uh, I would do music with Tom, and I would do movies with Charlie, and then that just started overlapping really more after, I mean, we were all friends. We all lived in the same uh, floor freshman year, but after college, most people just stop doing silly movies with their friends, but we like, mm-hmm. we doubled down, doubled down <laughs> and, and started making much more involved movies with our friends. And Tom got on board and has been ever since. So it's fun. It, and, and it's like, it's hard to collaborate with people. Like it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's a very delicate thing. People's feelings can be hurt very easily and you have to be super comfortable with them. So, um, so the three of us can work together great because we've known each other for, for so long and, and we are that comfortable. You know, if someone else came into the mix, it, it, it's, it would be hard. So, uh, yeah, I have one other, uh, good friend who I made movies with Chris Peterson. Uh, I made movies with him through high school and, uh, he was in LA for a while, but since he's moved back, he's been in, uh, everything since, since River Beast. He plays the, um... The guy on crutches in River Beast, who's uh, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, stalking Alley. Did you ever consider it like a career opportunity? Like, was there ever a moment where you went, "All right, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to make enough money to live off of this somehow"? Oh, uh, you know, we dream about it sometimes. We want to, but compared with music, where I am making enough to live on on music, it's like, it's a lot easier to do it in music. I think um, on your own. Like Spotify and iTunes is anyone can get up there, and and then if if you're lucky enough and work hard enough, you can make money off it. Whereas just getting on Netflix is you know pretty much impossible for us for the type of movies we make. So I mean, it's still possible, and um, our game plan continues to be let's keep making movies because who knows, maybe one of them, maybe 15 years after we made um, Freaky Farley, maybe it'll just accidentally catch on. And if it does, then we'll have a whole bunch of other movies for people to also discover. So, you know, we're, we're just keep on doing it. But ultimately, we joke that like our greatest uh, moment from all these movies will that we'll be invited to speak at a college and like four people will come to the speech. That's <laughs> that's our only uh, goal. <laughs> so on IMDb and on the Internet, it says that Druid Gladiator clone was the first feature film that you put together. Is that true or is there stuff before that? Uh, yeah, there's stuff. There's stuff before. The first feature is Adventures in Crubin Country, which came out just shortly before that. There, we did a whole bunch uh, after college. Charlie moved out to L.A. like, I don't know, 03 or 04. And we gradu- graduated in 2000. So in the early 2000s, we made Adventures in Crubin Country. Uh, Sammy, Druid Gladiator Clone, and Druids, Druids Everywhere, and which are all part of a series. Oh wow! It was on. It was on Mini DV. It was really like a film school. Mm-hmm. The process of making those movies 
was how we learned all the tricks um, that we would then employ when when we started making them that were just a little bit more more of a money inve- money and time investment, you know. So it, it was great. That I think that's you know that's the best way to learn is just by doing it. So you considered those movies like more of an experimental run. It wasn't like oh this is the one that we're gonna send to people and hopefully they'll give us jobs or pick it up and distribute it. I don't know. It. We were not, obviously if you know if Steven Spielberg called and said he wanted us to make a movie for him, we we would do it. But uh, it's it's really always been like we want to just do it ourselves from where we are, and it would be cool, you know, it'd be great if we could make money doing it. But it's like you hear every every story you hear from from most filmmakers is that they're mad that the studio made them make changes, or that it took them twenty years to get mm-hmm. their dream movie made, and even when it was, it was full of compromises. It's like, well, that doesn't sound like a great life. You know what's better? Just if <laughs> make the movie exactly how you want to make it and have no one telling you what to do. You know, the flip side is you don't get paid for it. Because I just watched Drew Gladiator Clone for the first time this week, and I thought it was hilarious. Oh, nice. It feels like a mini-DV movie, though. You know what I mean? It's just like of that time and uh, the, the spirit. I mean, back then, also, there was no no way of getting anyone to watch them either there was no no youtube or yeah. anything so we just made them and then and then made more <laughs> <laughs> so but freaky farley seeing that it was like shot on film feels like the one that you guys decided all right this is going to be like our first movie that we're going to put out there is, am i correct in that assumption yeah for sure i mean we you know we sent the other movies to a few places um just for fun it uh, adventures in, in curban country played at the west yellowstone film festival in uh in montana but yeah for sure we're like you know what let's do this let's make let's make a movie on film i I was working in social work and uh charlie was in la at the time working as an editor and whatnot it's a majorly expensive and ambitious uh thing to do but it was like hey we're doing this this is so exciting and did you like try to raise money or just had to just go and do it because like film is not cheap it was Thirty dollars a minute. Were you paying out of your own pocket? Yeah, a hundred percent out of our own pocket. Yeah, I'm not. A, you know, again, if people want to give me money, I'll take it. But um, <laughs> there's something kind of like thrilling and exciting of knowing that it's like this is your movie and you're spending your money on it and you're gonna have to <laughs> deal with the consequences. You know, so and it's just like a true devotion to your art in that. I just saved money for a couple years. Just, you know, where my friends were going out and having fun, I was staying in and not having fun with my eyes on the prize of one day making a movie on film that a couple people might watch. (laughs) So I have to, like, mention your inspirations, because when I've heard you talk about them, they've been, like, very specific. Mm -hmm. Like, could you just talk about, like, the movies that inspire you and the ones that... It's, uh, I I like all kinds of movies, of course, you know? I like uh, Alfred Hitchcock... Kubrick, Steven Spielberg, you name it. But in terms of uh, what we have to deal with, because we've chosen to do it at home for as little money as possible, we have to, it's like, we we can't make Spartacus, you know? So we can't, but we can make a movie like these, these, the other types of movies that I love and and Charlie loves and Tom loves, which are primarily 70s and 80s uh, low budget horror movies. And, uh, you know, it ranges from incredibly 
low budget homemade stuff like uh, Curse of the Screaming Dead or other uh, Don Dohler movies. Yeah, too. I've heard you talk about Bill Rabane as well. As yes, a yes, for sure. Charlie and Tom like those guys a little bit more than I do. You know, my sweet spot is a little bit more of a budget, you know, uh, and even though I preach against Hollywood, it's like being able to hear the dialogue and, and see <laughs> the picture is, is kind of nice. So, yeah. so I do like, like the Friday the 13th. Slumber Party Massacre 3 is a very specific uh, <laughs> movie that I love. And Silent Night, Dead, Deadly Night Part 2 is uh, one of my favorite movies of all time. And specifically because that one, the producers told the writers and directors that they didn't want to spend enough money to make a full movie, so they had to repackage Part 1 in flashbacks to fill up half the movie and then just film half a movie's worth of a new movie. And I just... Love that. Your Druid Gladiator clone has a garbage day joke way before that became a meme online. Yeah, well, we loved uh, we loved that since uh, I, I don't even remember the first time I saw it, but I was, you know, I was very happy and very happy to show my friends, as anyone is when they watch it. So I've, I've written fan mail to the director uh, wow. multiple times. I've sent him a, sent him a copy <laughs> of Freaky Farley. I think I'm on like a watch list for him, but hey, whatever. <laughs> and when you write your scripts with Charlie, are you aware of like what kind of tone you want with these movies? Because they're very specific. Like when people are talking about a horror film, sometimes they talk about the gore or the scares. But like you and Charlie's films, they seem to almost be like a friendly kind of lovable tone to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, our favorite moments, like there's a movie called Final Exam from like oh, 81. Final Exam. So our favorite part in Final Exam is when Radish is talking to the girl and like he loves her, but he doesn't know what to do. Or she loves him even, you know, and she's like, why is it that you always make me laugh? And he's like, I got to go do inventory for the coach. And he like runs out of the dorm room. And then he pops his head back in. He's like, "I just want you to know that you are beautiful," <laughs> and and we're and it's just so funny that this is a you know it's packaged as this brutal, grisly, terrifying horror movie, and it's like after school special moments going on that were most of the movie is after school special with the occasional murder, and uh and that's what that's what our movies are too. So we just love that um just that awkward, weird uh, back and forth. I remember someone once saying that final exam is like an hour of just hanging out with a bunch of college kids, and then suddenly a murderer shows up out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, and that's so good. Oh, like the gore is the least interesting part for me. Whenever I'm watching any of them, I'm like, delay the murders, please. Or... <laughs> The good thing to do is have people die, but don't let the main characters know it's happening. So the main characters can keep on having fun and be carefree. Because <laughs> the minute that everyone knows there's a killer around, the the, the fun level go- plummets. And it's like, ah, oh, you know, there's a lot less that you can uh, hope to enjoy. When you're doing stuff like Freaky Farley, um, you've mentioned that you cast basically people that you know. Have you had to go out of that? And what has been your experience like directing them or getting the performance that uh, you and Charlie want out of them. As time has con- gone by, we've been able to embrace, you know, a whole troop really of people. But mm-hmm. er- early on, uh, like in the Druid movies, it was basically just everyone who worked with me at the group home where I worked. I would just recruit them to be in the movies, and it, luckily they all did because <laughs> you know I would just talk to them constantly about it until they were finally like, "All right, I'll be in your movie." 
Uh, and then the ones who clearly enjoyed doing it, we'd hold on to for, for more movies. So, you know, we, we got to use a lot of those people in Freaky Farley, but we, we put out a couple of Craigslist ads for The Witch. Mm-hmm. A girl named Steph played The Witch. She drove down from Maine, and she was, uh, she was totally cool, and we had a blast. We were laughing like crazy. She was like like 21 years old and she just you know drove down and hung out with us for a couple of days, you know, and did a great job. And then the woman who played um the therapist in Freaky Farley, her name is Ruth and uh likewise she answered a, an ad and just came down. Our direction if if we ever have any direction, it's usually like uh do less maybe, you know, cuz some especially some people who have been trained for um theater We'll do we'll do it real big, and we have to just tell them tone it down a bunch, a little bit. But I mean, generally, we're just happy that they showed up. Another thing is, you know, we know the acting isn't great, me included. It's very specific, though, in all of your movies. Yeah, and the trick is, we tell them to do their best. Never ever should you purposely try to be bad, you know. And yeah. and some some movies do that, and I feel like you can always tell. When they're like, oh, look at me, you know, uh, cynically, purposely doing bad. Like, mm-hmm. that's not what we want. We, we, you know, as often as possible, we don't want you reading the lines uh, off a cue card right in front of you. Uh, but it, it, when it has to happen, so be it. But, I mean, we're going to try our best. And, and when you are trying your best and it's still bad, that's when it's, it's just like, ah, beautiful. like the specificity of like these natural offbeat performances mixed with your very wordy kind of dialogue is that's like the perfect comedy like sweet spot yeah thank you yeah um and definitely when we're writing it we're like oh this is a mouthful uh let's see if tom will be able to get through this one this is gonna be fun (laughs) like there's a specific line because i recently watched freaky farley a few days ago where um, someone says, oh, my nudity is now making me uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Sharon says it. Yeah, I'm su- I suddenly feel, it's almost a biblical word, whatever she said. Uh, ashamed, I suddenly feel ashamed of my nakedness. Yeah, that's what she says. I'm shocked that you haven't uh, tried to merchandise some of this dialogue on T-shirts. Yeah, well, I don't know. Anytime we try to do merch, we just end up with a lot of unsold stuff in my basement. <laughs> so <laughs> we're, I can't get rid of this stuff. And then I just just end up giving it away and people probably throw it out but um but yeah i mean just the fact that you've watched any of these movies is uh that that this is just keeping us going so we're very grateful i um recall that when i first met peter kaplowski he actually talked to me about freaky farley and this was seven years ago seven eight Mm -hmm. years ago And he had received it as a submission for a film festival that he was programming for. And he just talked about like how weird it was and that like he didn't have the pull to get it programmed. Did you have difficulty like when you finished the film and you saw it and you're like, this is great. And you started sending it out. Like what were the reactions you were getting? back? Um, I mean, Peter was our best reaction. um, And his reaction was, um, I guess he sent Charlie an email that was like, hey. I just want you guys to know <laughs> I love this movie. Uh, yeah. It didn't get accepted, but good job. So, I mean, you know, we talked about that for years. We're like, well, at least we have that guy in Canada, right? At least he likes us. Because I even remember when he told me about it, like the way he tried to explain it, he was like, it's a guy and he peeks on people and and I don't know. It's just like a weird tone. Uh, and I was don't like, I know it? <laughs> <laughs> and did you ever think like after you made Freaky Farley – 
like, did you try to approach monsters and marriage in a different way? Or did you just go, ah, you know what? We're just going to do what we like uh, to do. The one thing that I thought would help sell the Manch Vegas is that we had Manch Vegas in the title. And, and Manch Vegas is a well-known nickname for the city of Manchester, New Hampshire. Like, instead of going for something for everybody, let's make something that at least people in southern New Hampshire will be like, wait, what? You know, because of the title. So that that was the um, only commercial uh, game plan <laughs> for, for that movie. Uh, Did it work out for you for that one? Uh, I... I don't know. I mean, we got both of the we got Freaky Farley and Manch Vegas on Netflix back when it was um when it was mailing wow. when it was mailing the DVDs, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh we we sold like 50 copies of each of those to Netflix, which was really exciting for us. And uh and then we ended up running an ad for 6 months at the local movie theater. A 15-second <laughs> ad. You know when they have like like ads for the local dentist or the local yeah Yeah. it would be uh and then suddenly boom a movie filmed in manchester new hampshire that's right it's monsters marriage and murder in manch vegas (laughs) i i I think it got rented at least quite a few times and it i mean just cool to know it was like at the time that was like the most legitimate way to be you know in the video market so it was kind of cool to to at least be in the conversation i gotta say that recently when i watched freaky farley i never realized how kind of unsettling it is out of all the movies that you guys have made it's the one that feels kind of like kind of uncomfortable almost like dark like the movies that inspired you like the pit you know we didn't think anyone was going to watch it and so we were able to kind of just you know go go a little dark and be a little twisted um and then it's like you know who ends up watching it like our parents and our <laughs> our nieces and nephews and cousins and then 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 you just feel weird inviting everyone you know we rented out a movie theater so they could watch <laughs> watch me kill kill a bunch of people <laughs> in a way that's that's comical but especially the older generation doesn't necessarily um get it like mm-hmm. we we had two screenings and like it was all my parents and their friends for the first screening and they were you know they were like oh okay but the, the second screen it was all our friends and they're cracking mm-hmm. up keeping that in mind we were just like yeah let's be a little bit uh lighter you know especially match vegas was kind of a reaction to that and that it was just adult kids running around delivering newspapers do you find it difficult to like even your actors or when you're like talking to people who are about to watch a movie, what tone you guys are going for. Like, like it's really, really funny. But some people that I've shown uh, your movies to are like, are not sure if they're supposed to be laughing or they're not supposed to be laughing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I find um, that if I do a good job of introducing it to a room, mm-hmm. then I can totally get them primed to enjoy it. So, you know, I might, at, when, when we're doing screenings of uh, Slingshot Cops, I'll be like, have you ever had the the fleeting idea that it would be funny if your wacky uncle was the lead actor in a buddy <laughs> cop movie? Have you ever, you know? And yeah. people are like, yeah. I'm like, well, I, I had that idea. And then I spent four years actually making the movie. And this is what came out of it. It is insane. You have no idea what you're about to see. We have a, a, another friend named Tom, and we thought we should make him speak in an Eastern European accent. And and we called him, and he said, what's an Eastern European accent? We said, we don't know, but you're going to do one. And he said, okay. So, you know, if you kind of, like, sell the, the that we're just bringing the gang together to do something wacky, then people are ready for it. Mm-hmm. But, I mean... To the uninitiated, they, you're right. Nope, they do not know what to do. <laughs> uh, a pal of mine described your film as kind of like John Waters in the sense that John Waters had like a community 
of actors and people that he worked with and he worked out of where he lived so it feels kind of like you're hanging out with friends yeah for sure and um you know um i get don doler had that too with a lot of actors Mm -hmm. who would pop up in movies beyond there and for sure i mean we love bringing people back and it's like one movie will be a chance for one actor to have their big you know lots of scenes and then in other movies they might just have a smaller role but uh but when whenever you see they're like hey there's there's brian fortin or that you know like we're (laughs) we're gonna keep as long as people will keep working with us we'll keep working with them did you ever like go to distributors and try to sell your films or hear anything back other than netflix charlie was the one who would who would Mm -hmm. figure out like festivals to try to send it to and other stuff like that and um over the course of the years it it just became like yeah what difference does it make? Let's let's just we can sell the DVD to a handful of people. We want to make money so that we can make more and 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 better movies. But uh, mm-hmm. be, besides that, it's just art for the sake of art and just uh, what's the point of life? The point of life is to do uh, fun things. So <laughs> that we we definitely haven't pushed the business end. Push comes to shove, we'd rather give it away than than not sell it. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you guys were maybe like seven years too early. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, um, they're out there. All we can do is, uh, you know, we'll talk it up any chance we get, and we'll keep making them. And, um, you know, we we sold, I don't know, we sold maybe 100 copies of Slingshot Cops um, mm. as just mail-order DVDs at, like, a pretty high price. It was, like, 24 bucks each. If we tried that with River Beast, we would have sold, like, five, you know? So yeah. we are making, you know, things are getting better for sure. It's just that they started really, really low, and they're getting better <laughs> slowly. I mean, the fact that you guys powered through is shows one hell of a commitment. Yeah, especially going Freaky Farley to Manch Vegas. I mean, that... It was two years from the the year we filmed Freaky Farley was 06 into 07, and then 08 we filmed Match Vegas. And I mean, it was so it was basically we were just write Freaky Farley, film Freaky Farley, edit Freaky Farley, premiere Freaky Farley, write Match Vegas, film Match Vegas. And uh, that's why you, if you look at the dates of our movies, that the the length of years between keeps on getting bigger. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't. I watched the uh, special features from Freaky Farley, and you actually tell uh, Sharon in like at the premiere. Well, the next movie we're shooting soon. Yeah, because that premiere was October, and it was August when we were st- we started working on the next one. Well, we were both. Um, we were younger. We were single. Uh, we didn't. We had nothing. <laughs> we had no no prospects. So uh, we, it was easier, you know. And I mean, Charlie lived in L.A. at the time, so he would have to take multiple weeks off of work and just stay in my apartment um you know while we were filming and i mean it was just intense living very intense and exhausting living so has it gotten i obviously harder as time has gone on to make these movies with like responsibilities and stuff like that has family or people close to you ever been like maybe you could just you've made enough movies <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, no, I mean, people probably know that it's, it's what I love to do, but uh, Mm. I try to, I I try to make it so that it won't get to that. And it's like, when you watch a movie, like American movie, uh, you've seen Mm -hmm. that, like, I just want to be, Hey, come on, man. You know, let's take better care of your family and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, live up to your responsibilities. You're. Your nobody's dream is that is that important. Uh, so like for Slingshot Cops, we we used to try to just film it in two or three weeks straight, but that would be way too much pressure on all the people around us. So now slowly we're getting to the point where where we're just doing a weekend here, a weekend there. So it's like 
or like a long weekend. You know, we'll have three straight days of just insane filming, but then everyone can get back to their lives and and recover and and not worry about it. And so what? The movie takes a little longer. People's hair <laughs> are gonna gr- will grow and then shrink oh, again from there. scene to scene. <laughs> but um, ultimately, it's like let's not let let's not literally hurt ourselves. I mean, there were days after Slingshot Cops where we we were just in pain, you know. And then you know, and then. Uh, in the old days, you know, we'd finish filming. I could just like sleep all day the next day, but yeah, I got two kids and whatnot. So, um, you know, I'm up at six in the morning, the next morning, hanging out with them. And how did local legends come about? This is a movie that you directed, which you hadn't done since I think, uh, drew the Druid cycle. Right. Yeah. And it's so painfully personal. (laughs) I think it's amazing. Like I recommend it to everybody who I start talking, uh, about Matt Farley too. How did that come about? You know, I like making these wacky, weird movies, but it, like, especially when I watch like like a movie like Francis Ha, which I know mm. came out after uh, Local Legends, but there's lots of oh, Tiny Furniture with Lena Dunham, just a lot of these movies that are supposedly depicting what it's like to be a creative, a young creative person, and I watch them and I just get so mad, and I'm like. This is ridiculous. This is this is glamorizing the myth of the of the aimless tortured artist and all this, you know, they're always doing drugs and and mm. and being weird and, and just I'm like I just wanted to demythicize uh that. And I just wanted it to be honest, you know, about how, you know, w- if you're a small-time artist, uh you're what are you dealing with? You're dealing with, you know, people who aren't impressed with what you do. You're dealing with uh the difficulties of getting the word out there. You're dealing with the battle within yourself about whether you should promote yourself or you should create better or more art, you know? So mm-hmm. that's why I had the two, uh, the t- businessman and, and the uh, the artist. But I definitely, almost as a reaction to those other movies, wanted to side on the side of the crass businessman. I like the businessman better than the artist because <laughs> he's honest. He's like, look, I just want to make money, whereas the, the artist also wants to make money, but it it lies about it it seems have you thought of making more movies in that style or is that like a one-off for you yeah for sure i mean i i have plan you know in the back of my head i want to make a movie called regional legends you know which is uh the sequel but you know i'm that was uh that movie kind of took about a dozen years worth of experiences and put them all into one movie Mm -hmm. so at the at the earliest it'll be like 20 25 before I'll, I'll have enough material. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. I don't uh in a perfect world, I'd make a, you know, I'd make every type of movie, for sure. It wouldn't just be these mm-hmm. wacky things, but within the uh limitations that we have, these are the movies we can make. Mm-hmm. And although we are we're in the process of writing a secret movie that um that's trying to be more realistic. So we're we're going to give that another shot soon. Are you going to make that one with Charlie as well? I'm curious to know like when was it decided that like Charlie would direct all the movies and you would star in them and you would produce them and write them because early on you directed a bunch of films and then you redid it again with Local Legend. For the Druid movies, I mean it was it was pretty 50-50 everything mm-hmm. and we would just uh Cohen Brothers style <laughs> have one be the producer and one be the director and we'd we'd switch it up each movie Cuban country and all and and Druid Gladiator clone etc that but by the time we were done it was clear that um when we're making the movie Charlie's doing more directing than I am because he's behind the camera mm. so it was determined starting with Freaky Farley Charlie's the director 
And then in terms of writing, I, the two of us would brainstorm on the story. Then I would write the bulk of the script, and then he would go through it and make changes and additions and whatnot, and then send it back to me, mm-hmm. um, et cetera. And that worked well for, for three movies. Starting with Slingshot Cops, we would actually meet on Skype pretty much once a week, have a Google Doc open between us and, and write it together. Mm-hmm. Just so it's like rather than me writing something and him him changing it or him writing something and me changing it, we could just deal with it immediately as we were doing it. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then um, you don't get married to an idea uh, only to see it vanish. Uh, but for local legends, um, I, you know, I, t- I told Charlie he could totally direct it. But he was living in L.A. at the time. And, uh, you know, he had already been out here for he had, you know, he had like four round trips from uh, to do uh, River Beast. And so he was like, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> 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 and it was obviously more my move. You know, it was mm-hmm. my personal statement a little bit more than his. So I totally, you know, totally understood. And, and I got him in there anyway. I had him film a scene and, and send it to me from. Uh, oh, that seems so funny. I, I've been there. Like, yeah, it's so true. Yeah, I think it's it's a great movie for a, a low-budget filmmaker or a podcaster mm-hmm. or an independent musician, anyone like that, or a low-level comedian. I think they can just sit back, watch, and totally be like, ah, yep, I recognize that, you know? And has there been, because you said you live off your music now, when did that actually start happening, that you, you were making enough money through that that you didn't have to work like a full-time day job? Yeah, uh, only uh, a little over a year ago. That I, I quit the I had worked 17 years at a group home for teenagers. Maybe two years prior to that, I was able to cut down to 30 hours a week. So I was slowly getting to the point where I, I could uh, be a, uh, on my own. But yeah, it's it's only been a little over a year that I'm completely funded by my music, and I expect it to you know totally crumble at any every every morning when I wake up. I'm like, all right, this is the day that it's over. Or Spotify is just like, we're tired of this this Joker and his wacky <laughs> songs. He's we're taking them all down. And has there ever been a moment when you were making the movies or like between movies where it got so hard that like you didn't want to continue anymore? Like, what has been the worst part of making movies for you? I mean, the editing part is uh is Charlie's worst moments for sure because he's the editor and uh, he puts these incredibly long sessions into it and he wants it to look good I'm always telling him I'm like it's fine don't worry about it like, leave the boom mic in you don't need to crop it out or paint it out or whatever but he's like I, I can't leave it I gotta <laughs> I gotta spend six hours painting uh, frame by frame painting it out but the one we always talk about is there's one day for slingshot cops where um, we had about 12 people in my house all day filming from, you know, 7 a.m. until, you know, 10 p.m. And just having that many people in the house for that long mm-hmm. and just feeling bad, you know, just <laughs> feeling <laughs> bad, guilty all the time about uh, bothering all these people because we don't pay any of them and they're just kind of hanging around. And everyone's so nice and no one complained at all, but you still just feel the pressure of uh, of wanting to get it done as fast as possible. So I mean that day um, took took years out of our lives. Oh wow! <laughs> you know we were just we were so beaten down when that was over, and of course we're still planning the next movie, so it, it couldn't have been that bad. <laughs> oh, that's great! Yeah, I did a movie that was all nights for three weeks, mm. uh, like back to back, and you're just like, why are we doing this? Like yeah. these actors must feel so bad. 
Yeah, so like one thing we have to always yeah, I I'm preaching kind of is just like we let's not hurt ourselves. Let's remember none of this matters. This, this people should never get upset about any of this. And 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 people don't. You know, hopefully in part because of the the atmosphere that we're creating, but it's like everything is fine. You could be the worst actor of all time and we'll be so happy with it just because you showed up and you didn't leave before it was over. You you hear about that all the time too, like, or bands, bands are always breaking up because of creative differences and, uh, and it's just like, come on, knock it off. What, what difference does it make? Mm-hmm. Have some fun with your friends. We're just having fun with our friends here. <laughs> it is not worth, um, getting upset in any way. So it's a very peaceful group of people that we have working together. I do a lot of the scheduling and there's a lot of time involved just trying to juggle everyone's schedule and, and, and doing it in ways to make sure that it's not going to be too much of a burden on one person or another. Mm-hmm. And then the one thing that I am uptight about is staying focused. You know, uh, on a set, oftentimes people can lose focus and start joking around mm-hmm. and telling stories. And uh, to the point where you're like, oh wait, for the last three hours we haven't we haven't actually been making the movie. So that that's the only time I'm I'm kind of a tyrant where I'm like, all right, <laughs> come on, it's good, let's go. I'm sorry, I'm sure that's an interesting story, but now's not the time to tell it. Let's go. Um, but it's for the good of the whole. Yeah, there's like always a feeling of like pressure off the shoulders when people just start telling stories, not realizing that like. Every minute we're not working on this is like less that'll make it up on screen. Yeah. Yes, you you have to minimize the um, fun on the set in that way. Mm-hmm. But um, also you have to just accept it. Like, should we do another take? Yeah, of course it would be a little bit better if we did another take. But by doing that other take, we might not be able to do the last scene we're planning to film today. You know, mm-hmm. so make sacrifices in the now to to at least just. Getting a finished product, I don't know about you, but I know so many people who have started movies and then five years later, I'm like, hey, what happened to that movie you started? And it's because of stuff like that. I heard uh, Charlie say, you guys love it when it's like a one car movie that everybody can get in one car and drive to the location. And I think there's something so magical about that. I'm like, yes, I agree. That is the best way, even though that you would say that to any professional and they go what that is crazy yeah well i mean you then you're just worrying like oh do they know where we're going next are they going to find a parking spot are they going to go uh to a convenience store and and buy some snacks and then eat them and then get distracted by something and then show up you know 25 minutes later than we need them you know part of the fun is that we we're we're holding them prisoner (laughs) and they they can't escape i I mean you've been there uh, more times than me, but the idea of like, please just show up for these few days. It will be immortalized forever. Yeah, I guess some people just don't care, but it's like your options are going to another party. You go to you go to like three parties a week. You have for, for <laughs> yeah. the last decade and you will for the next decade. Mm-hmm. Can you just skip this one party to make a movie that will be, be you know be out there forever and and a lot of people don't want to do it and hey that they can do what they want but um it's amazing i mean i i've skipped uh i've skipped thousands of parties so i can make movies on match vegas i heard you talking about that like 10 people dropped out Uh, that was the yeah i mean that was a very ambitious movie with lots and lots of characters i mean just for one role the carrie keen role we had four or five actresses who who bailed on us before uh, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, and we had just kind of started dating, and she she didn't want to <laughs> do it. And she was aware of the process, and she was like, "Look, if you're absolutely incredibly desperate, I'll do it." 
And finally, I was like, "All right, look, we've gone through five, <laughs> five times. You're 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 in the movie. Sorry." Uh, I just have to talk about Kevin McGee for a moment because he's uh, probably. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to say the most iconic because everyone's iconic in your movies, but his persona is so hilarious and specific. And he was your boss, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he was the supervisor um, at the group home where I worked. Uh, we worked together for eight eight years. Yeah, eight years. And I mean, it was very, very shortly after I met him that um, I determined that he was in. You know, he was into music. He was into movies and acting and theater. And so I was like, Charlie, I got a good guy to play the the evil dru- <laughs> evil druid warlord. And I mean, it, because he's an imposing figure, you know, like he, hmm. he's big and you know he's a big weightlifter. So he's you know he's got he's uh, super muscular, just a great athlete in general too. He played uh, you know multiple sports in college, so he's this imposing figure. So oftentimes we make him you know the the bad guy. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we're just laughing and joking on the set the whole time, and then he he gets his he can get that straight face going, and he takes pride in. Uh, and making other actors laugh while he maintains a straight face too, which is great. Oh wow! Because <laughs> I that the final gag of uh, "Don't Let the River Bees Get You" with him is probably one of the <laughs> funniest things that I have ever seen. When we did a screening of it, people like couldn't breathe in the audience. That he's just born for that. You know, he came out of the bathroom area where he had been uh, getting the makeup on, he, and he was just loving it as everyone's looking at him. He is. <laughs> He is a he's a character, and it's so great to be able to uh, to turn him into a cult a cult figure. <laughs> Though I'm really excited for what you guys are doing next for your secret project. Yeah, well, I, I can tell you a little bit uh, the secret project. So you know, much like with local legends, local legends is funny. I think because it's funny, straightforward, and and real and sort of realistic. Versus our other movies are funny because they're they're a little off. You know, so yeah. we're trying to make a movie that's funny because it's funny. Um, but it's also in the, um, you know, the horror slash mystery genre a little bit, but where, uh, Tom, Tom and I kind of play characters very much like ourselves. Probably, we're probably going to be Tom and Matt actually. Um, but (laughs) where, you know, we're just the, the funny selves that we are all the time, but we just happen to be dealing with, uh, uh, a scary situation, which is probably a premise that a lot of people do, but, um, our worldview is is hopefully unique enough that it, it'll uh, it'll stand out. And and another, you know, after I told you about that day when we had twelve people in my house, it, this is a movie where it's mostly me and Tom on the screen, and then maybe one other actor at a time. You know, there's not a lot of moments where there's mm-hmm. there's tons of people. Yeah. And the last the last rule that I made for this movie is, we film for a weekend, and then we're not allowed to film again. For at least uh, like three months, at least three, three months. months. Yes, wow. because just for our own sanity, you know, we don't want to get so wrapped up in it that it's uh, that it's hurting us. It's got to be mm-hmm. fun, so we got to give ourselves time to uh, to to recover after each uh, horrible weekend session. <laughs> and so these days, you spend like nine to five writing songs. Uh, well, uh, my wife works four days a week, so those four days I'm I'm with the kids, you know, from like seven a.m. till you know five or six p.m. And then those evenings, whenever possible, I, I go downstairs and work on songs for a few hours. But 
it can be hard, you know, after you've been taking care of a couple of kids for 11 yeah. hours to then be like, all right, let me uh, <laughs> write some masterpieces. But three days a week, she's home, and I'm pretty much down here th- those entire days. And uh, for as long as I can keep it happening, I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, it's pretty, pretty wonderful. And at this point, is there anything like, do you have a goal that you want to go towards? Or is it just like, I'm going to make the next movie? I feel like, feel like we have, I have a better shot at making, uh, money off the music you know like you know, you never know if something one of the songs goes viral for some reason or another it would be nice in theory that could happen with the movie slingshot cops is on amazon prime and um who knows if if somehow like how did this get made you know that podcast yeah if they did an episode on it you know ah oh, but that would be so disingenuous i don't care i've sent them uh oh, have you? multiple packages with those dvds in them yeah <laughs> because i mean make fun of me all you want uh just someone watch this movie because especially <laughs> slingshot cops i i think that's the funniest one we've made and um but i think it takes multiple viewings to really uh appreciate everything uh, again who knows maybe obviously i'm i'm obsessed with myself so i'm not i'm a bad judge but um but I feel like it needs uh, people really need to sit with that for a while to to truly lo- <laughs> love it as much as I do. Yeah, I think your films are definitely like a communal experience in the sense that they're not meant to be sat and watched by yourself on a computer where like people will get distracted and do other stuff. You either have to be trapped in a theater or you're sitting with a bunch of friends watching them. Yeah, for for sure. Yeah, and who know? And it, it could happen. So uh, so we're just gonna keep doing it. The, so the next there's the secret movie, and then after that, um, probably. Freaky Farley Part 2. Freaky, oh, oh man, yeah. I'm excited for that. It's probably going to be called Freaky Farley vs. The Mayor with the tag with the tagline, <laughs> you can fight City Hall. Oh, wow. <laughs> the mayor raises an army of ninjas, and Freaky Farley raises an army of trogs, and they have a, a war. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, but with your three-month rule, it could come out in, like, 2025 at this point. Oh, we might change the rule by then. This is just for the the next movie coming up because we're still tired. We're still tired from Slingshot Cops. <laughs> well, I was shocked at how fast you guys turned Slingshot Cops oh, around. Cool, nice. Yeah, I get. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Charlie works so um, hard and fast, and I feel bad. Like he'll email me at three in the morning with a question. I'm like, why are you still editing at three in the morning? <laughs> you know, it was the same. We did the Christmas special, and, oh, and you were in it, so that was pretty awesome. Oh yeah, that Christmas special was great. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it was a, a brief uh, reminder of how exhausting all this is when uh, <laughs> the three of us are emailing in the wee hours of the morning regarding the soundtrack or. Or you name it, but ultimately it's fun, and it's you know I probably wouldn't be in touch with uh, my college friends if we didn't do this. I mean, yeah, that the perfect way that like friends group can work together, especially that they moved so far. Like Charlie and I'm not sure where Tom lives now. Yeah, he but... lives in upstate New York. So yeah, there there'd be you know I'd, there'd be a text every few months otherwise. Mm-hmm. Or I don't like a lot of people socialize by I don't know they all like get together and do a. Um, fantasy football draft every year and that's the time that mm. all the friends know they're getting together so this is just our version of that thanks very much for doing this matt yeah this is fun